from pretty much going everywhere in the world, to Israel, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Calgary, Montreal, all the way up in cottage country, all the way down to Russell Hill Road, and everywhere in between. I want to welcome you on this morning of Rosh Hashanah. Truth be told, I never imagined in my rabbinic career that I would be so keen on Nielsen ratings, but here we are. There is uh, lots of news in the world. There is news of peace agreements between Israel and a number of Arab nations, news of the passing of a great Jewish female jurist, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, last evening. Those are events on the outside, and there'll be time enough to talk about it over the past coming days. But today, I don't want to talk about the outside. Today, I want to talk about our inside. From my childhood, I had a wonderful teacher who I kept in touch with until he passed away. And over the course of those years and phone calls, when I would ask him how his Shabbat was, how Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur was, he would always say the same thing. He would say, Aaron, it was a good davening. Davening, of course, being the Yiddish word for praying. And early on, what struck me in the conversation was, was the difference. Because usually when we ask people how shul was, they generally comment on the rabbi's sermon. They liked the sermon. They didn't like the sermon. They liked the sermon a lot. But I remember telling my teacher of the differences between these two kinds of worlds on how he focused on the praying and how it was never about the sermon. And when he said it was a good davening, he had taught me that prayers with the central message of the day. And there was a pause on the phone, and then he says to me, I only said that because my rabbi of my shul gives lousy sermons. So it's true that every year we have things to pray for. But, and I count myself in this, but we mostly slide in and slide out of these days, weeks, and months. Most years, Rosh Hashanah is a happy and comfortable time. For most of us, we see the prayers and hear the music. We take in the thoughts, and while we know that they are important, they don't seem important to us right now. We say to ourselves, maybe later, we say. Maybe when I'm older. Maybe when something is of need for me. But since so many of you are seeing and hearing me over a screen, I think this year we need a good davening. So let's talk. By now, if you're like me, you've read the histories of modern pandemics. You now know the toll of the Spanish flu of 1918 that killed over 50 million people. Maybe you've also learned about polio from the 40s and 50s. Your life is now filled with acronyms, H1N1, MERS, SARS, AIDS, viruses that are now the story of what happens when modernity, with its 150 years of expansion and science, industrialism and travel, meets the power of nature. And since March of this year, you have asked me, over email and Zoom and phone calls, the very same question in different ways. How do we live through this? And how will we live beyond this? Which isn't a question for science because science can't answer the questions of the soul. So 
So our search for an answer begins in the same way that this virus began. It also begins with modernity. And let us be clear about what modernity is. It's not modern, because every moment that you live in is modern. No Western modernity, the world that we have been taught and grown in, is a set of ideas, the likes of which have never been seen in all of human life until 200 years ago. Understand that you think and you live in ways that no human until 200 years ago lived and thought. I'm talking about reason and individualism. They not only collided with nature, but also with Judaism. When Judaism and Western modernity met, the results were no different than when you go to a new house, a newly built house of your friends. The house that you left, yours, at the beginning of the day, what you come back to, doesn't feel quite the same. It feels a little off. When modernity swept into the world with liberal values of equality and humanism, people looked at Judaism and saw it was unequal with its treatment of women. The very same person who could be the president of a bank, the chief surgeon of a hospital, sit on the bench of the Supreme Court if she came to a minion, she couldn't be number one, five, seven, or ten. In short, she didn't count. Another example. In the past decade or two, the emergence of people who won't and don't hide their sexual orientation has been so profound that in the past where they were in the closet and hid, today it's the homophobe that's in the closet. An advance that is deep and right but expose the problem. Because even a survey of a few verses in the Torah show us an attitude that at best is in support of homosexuality, at worst it's condemning. So you look at your tradition that discriminated against women and homosexuals, and you see a gap between your values and your tradition. And you ask yourself, how do I reconcile this? And another not so small example, for people who see all human beings as equal, there are religious separations built between people, leaving some inside and some outside. So when an ancient faith meets an intensive, liberal, and humanistic movement, it exposes its problems with hum women, hum sec human sexual identity, and humanity. Boom. And the past 150 years has been the good story of healing or fixing Judaism with these values. And how did we do that? We were helped in no small part because of what Judaism actually is. Because Judaism is not a religion of a book, but on books. Judaism is not a faith constructed on an idea, but ideas. In Judaism, nearly every idea has a counter idea. 3,000 years of tradition has given us a treasure trove of perspective and when the May moment came, we opened it up and we found equality for women. And we found respect for sexual choice. And we found an understanding of the equal value of all people. Now, only with an exception of small areas in the Jewish world are there these now near universal norms. But I've spoken about this for years. And I have to confess that I haven't been so honest. 
and it took a contagion to help me see what I didn't see. And I think you've seen it too. So 150 years ago, Judaism meets modernity and exposes all these problems in Judaism. And that's all people took time to look at. But this is also true. When Judaism and modernity met, it exposed serious, deep problems in modernity. The first problem is told to us by the sociologist Robert Putnam. In 2007, the prestigious University Vassar College closed down its 58th annual book sale, which raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for scholarships for needy students because the volunteers who run it were dying off and no one was coming to replace them. In 2010, outside of Boston, Tewksbury Memorial High School purchased 40 brand new, brand new uniforms for their marching band 36 were put into storage because only four students signed up. 20 years ago, the band of 80 had a waiting list. Closer to us, Jewish community centers were full and bustling. Local libraries were busy places. Cultural and civic clubs were subscribed. Today, they're near empty. I know this congregation had an acting club, it had a bowling club, it had a men's group and a sisterhood, there were youth groups for all ages, cooking classes, adult education programs, religious services were full on a weekly basis, and this crisis is not just Beth Shalom or Judaism, it's true for churches and synagogues throughout the Western world. Modernity's problems are seen in questions like this. How many close friends, a friend who you could ask for a loan of, say, $1,000, does a person have? 20 years ago, the average answer was four. Today, it's two, because people have fewer friends. Long before COVID-19, we were silently living through a pandemic. And over the past eight months, economists have been busy calculating the material cost of the COVID pandemic in GDP and deficits and national debt. But has anyone taken the time to measure the cost of our loneliness? Where in fact the mortality rates of people who suffer loneliness, chronic, acute loneliness, is higher than that of people who smoke cigarettes? Has anyone measured what causes 26% of a country and continent to be on some form of psychiatric medication? We are the wealthiest generation of humans to have ever lived. And we are the most anxious and depressed generations of humans who have ever lived. But modernity doesn't want you to know that. But the real breaking point between Judaism and the creation of the modern Western world is found in this one simple question, what will make you happy? The modern Western world has an answer. If you win one more victory, lose 15 pounds, do a little bit more yoga, you'll get happy. You'll get happy by the things that you own, the clothes that you wear, the trips that you take, and be sure to post pictures of them early and often, my friends, and each of them are trophies of your success. Notice that there's a lot of yous in those statements. 
And business people say you are what you measure. But if you measure yourself only by money and power and prestige, you'll spend your life running on a treadmill to nowhere because that's a tape measure that has no end to it. The problem is you seldom realize it until it's nearly all over. So if it is happiness that you're searching for, then you need a different kind of measurement. I've stood at the deathbed of many people over my life and never once have I heard someone mourn something they didn't buy or the time that they didn't spend by themselves. But I have heard of the, about the deep relationships in people's lives. And then they pull me closer and they say, Rabbi, I'm not a religious person. But being a Jew is important to me. Judaism's message as to what makes us deeper and happier, grounded and peaceful, is not to look at the things that I have or the person that I am as a solution to what I need from life. The ancient rabbis tell the story of one of our greatest sages, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was known as someone who would go visit the ill. He cared for them and saw that they were healed. And one day word spread that this famous rabbi himself was sick and he was bedridden. And then another rabbi, his name was Hanina, went to go visit him, spoke with him, blessed him, and prayed over him. And then after finished praying over him, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai stood up and he was healed. And the Talmud, the storyteller, asked the question, if Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was such a great healer, why didn't he heal himself? And the Talmud answers by saying, En chavush matiratzmo, because the prisoner can never free himself, which is to say that I always need another to lean upon, to lift me up when I am down. In moments of sickness and depression, I know now that I am not self-sufficient. For all the talk of autonomy, my cherished individualism, there always comes a time when we need another person. Months ago, when I officiated a funeral at the very beginning of the pandemic, we stood at a grave six feet from each other. The women's children and grandsons spoke about her life. In the far distance, four cemetery workers waited for the service to conclude so they could fill in the grave, and all of us wore masks. And later that same day, the woman's daughter called me to ask about Shiva. During Shiva, she says, I have to stay at home, don't I? And I said, yes. And then she says, well, everyone's doing that anyway. I said, it does seem as though the entire world is sitting Shiva. But this six-month-long Shiva, our communal brush with illness and death, fragility and loss, reminds me that character comes from the difficult that growth grows from loss. The Rosh Hashanah calls us to do what modernity does so poorly, that there is no going over pain. We must go through it and emerge on the other side. That Judaism is a tradition built on community. That some of our most important prayers, including the Kaddish, can only be said when there are 10 people present. That a synagogue is not called a house of prayer, but a Beit Knesset, the house of gathering. The technology has brought services and classes and discussions online. But when this pandemic wanes, will we trade our sweatpants for suit pants once again? 
in a time where commitment to things other than ourselves is waning. We wonder at this moment, will the community come back to the way that it was, or perhaps even better? But because I believe that human nature is immutable, when we take off these masks, we will rush into each other's arms. I believe that community is a deep existential need. I know that I can't wait to see people gather again at services, at weddings, and yes, even funerals. I believe the time will come when we will tire of this anxiety and this loneliness and we will look for each other. And how do I know this? Because others have searched for it and this is what they have found. In what feels like a forever ago, Lisa and I were traveling in Vienna. Vienna is the home of sparkling clean boulevards, the empty palaces of the Habsburgs, creamy pastries. But the other Vienna is a Vienna of history, of Freud, Herzl, Hitler, but also the home to one of my personal heroes, Viktor Frankl. Dr. Frankl, a psychotherapist, a neurologist, was 32 years old when taken away to Auschwitz with his wife and parents. He alone survived, and nine days after being liberated, he would write his first book that would see itself translated into over 24 languages, and more than 16 million copies purchased. Of the many of that would follow that first book that would define him, he tells in it this story. One evening, while in Auschwitz, they are awoken and forced outside. It was the winter time and they were marching to where they were told to start digging trenches. It was freezing cold and in the rags and the malnutrition and the poor fitting wooden clogs covering their near frostbitten feet. It was unbearable, he wrote. And Frankel said to himself at that moment, I will lay this shovel down and I will jump into that pit and they'll shoot me and it'll be all over. But as he was about to put the shovel down, suddenly the man next to him says, I hope our wives are better off than we are. And it was that moment in the cold exhaustion hunger as the icy wind toward his body, the image of her face, her eyes, her smile. He said it made it all sufferable. And years later, he would say that it didn't matter if she was alive or dead. In fact, his pregnant wife had already been murdered. But the very fact that such love could exist makes life worth living. He held on to the shovel. And he survived not only that evening, but the others that followed when he would pass away at the age of 94. This morning I began with a question. How do we live through this? And how will we live beyond this? As we celebrate Rosh Hashanah this year, let us pray that our hindsight will be 2020. That we will learn what we need most. That's each other. Shana Tova. Shabbat Shalom.